Well, we're in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 22. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 23 this morning. And it is a very special uh, passage that we're going to be looking at and really kind of moving through and unpacking verse by verse. I titled this sermon, The Final Passover and the First Lord's Supper. And both of these events happen on that Thursday night that we recall when Jesus gathered his disciples together for the Last Supper. It truly was the final Passover, the, the, the final real Passover that was celebrated in uh, Jesus' time and the first Lord's Supper as he instituted these things. So let's move through, and, and just as we move through, here's, here's a good reminder. Try your best to imagine yourself there. Put yourself in this place. Be at the table. Be in the room. Listen and watch. And, and uh, it's amazing what will happen as we use kind of a, a sanctified imagination. Re- recall these verses as if you were there and they were happening to you. So let's begin in verse 1. Colluding with killers. Colluding with killers. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Uh, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Okay, so the enemies of Jesus are still pursuing him. They want to end his life. They want to destroy him completely, eliminate him. The problem is, is that they're afraid of the crowd. That, by the way, has at this point in Jerusalem swelled to around 300,000 people. The city is bursting at the seams. Everybody comes to celebrate Passover. This is what they're there for. And they know that every day that goes by that Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, more and more people are drawn to him. So they fear the people if they try to take him publicly that that, that they'll turn on them. But they also fear the people if they don't do anything that in fact he will become too powerful for them and take over and threaten their uh, very wonderful system that has been in place, a system of control and finance and uh, partnership and agreement, at least with the Roman authorities. So they were more than happy when Judas came to them with a plan. It's amazing to think about Judas. From the beginning, Jesus knew that Judas was uh, a fraud, a fake, a betrayer. He knew it. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he says it. One of them is not true. But for Judas, I mean, just think, this guy has walked with Jesus for three years. He has heard God himself preaching and speaking. He has witnessed supernatural wonders, the raising of the dead, the healing of tons and tons of people. And all of this has taken place, and his heart is still cold, cold. We learn more about Judas that, in fact, he was uh, the guy that took care of the money for the disciples. 
and he would at times, as John tells us, he would be dipping into the pot for his own gain. Now, the, the other disciples, they didn't realize the corruption of Judas. They had no idea. But Jesus knew. The whole time he knew. And yet, Jesus treated him with love and with grace. And he understood the purpose of this betrayal. He knew it was coming. And he watched it unfold before his eyes. It says that Satan entered him. Uh, the question here is, how is that possible? Did Satan himself enter into Judas? Well, we know that if you're truly a believer, that that is impossible. You cannot be uh, possessed by the Spirit of God and by the enemy, by, by demons. So I think here we're, we're seeing a strong satanic influence at least, if not a direct uh, movement of Judas under satanic impulse. But you can't blame the devil. We can't just say, well, the devil made him do it. Because Judas had it in his heart. This was his inclination as well. He left. His actions. He is responsible for these things. I'll say more as we draw to the end of this passage. He goes to the chief priests and the, the leaders of Israel and he proposes a plan basically to betray. I, I'll, I'll tell you when Jesus is alone. In fact, I know that that's going to happen soon. I think, I, I would imagine his anticipation was that that would be during the Last Supper. I, I know where he's going to be. I, I'll, at least I'll try to find out and I'll tell you. And they say, that's awesome. We'll give you money. And that had to be wonderful for Judas to hear because he was really into money. There was a point along the way where a woman was pouring out an expensive ointment and he complained saying, couldn't we save this and give it to those who are poor? And what we understand about that exchange is that was false. He wanted that money to be in his pockets. He didn't have concern for the poor. He was in it for himself. And beyond this, the scripture really doesn't give us any real motive. Why did he do this? This is insane. An innocent man to betray him. In any case, that is his goal. And so, concealing Passover plans. I understood these verses in a totally new way as I just sat in them and stared at them this week. Look at how this unfolds, verses 7 through 13. <clears throat> Then came the day of unleavened bread, that's Thursday, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Okay, this is a, a normal uh, thing for Jesus to do. And just to re remind ourselves what Passover is all about. For faithful Jews, a Passover is to be uh, practiced each year. On the 14th day of Nisan, they are to gather, uh, which is the second month, that they have, and they recall the deliverance of God from slavery in Egypt. Now, for those who were here when we went through all the verses of Exodus, you remember all of these pieces. The institution of uh, the Passover was a recalling of that tenth plague when Pharaoh said, no, I won't let your people go. And Moses said, well, if you don't, then the angel of death will come and the firstborn of both man and beast will be struck dead. And he hardened his heart. And so the Lord warned his people, tonight the destroyer is going to come. 
And if you have the blood of, an, of a pure and spotless lamb painted on the doorpost of your house, when the destroyer comes, he will pass over your house and you will be delivered. You will be protected. And sure enough, it happened just that way. Every home in the Jewish uh, section of, of, of the, the city where they had the blood painted on the doorposts of the house, the angel of death passed over. But the cries and the groans were all over Egypt as the firstborn of man and beast were killed. And as a result, Pharaoh opened up and said, just leave, just leave. And they plundered Egypt as they left. This was a glorious, a glorious deliverance of God. It was instituted as a reminder, don't forget, tell the generations. When they ask, why are we doing this? You tell them, this is what God has done. He delivered us from our slavery through the blood of a spotless lamb when he passed over. So, here's from Exodus. Your lamb shall be without blemish. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, sundown. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... now. Don't miss this. He sends the destroyer, but he says, when I see, I will pass over you. So this is, a, this is an act of divine judgment that God lays upon Egypt, but he spares his chosen. I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is a celebration to commemorate the deliverance of God. Now, Peter and John, they say to Jesus, uh, where will you have us prepare it? Now, if we're watching a DVD, this is when you pause. Okay, you pause because you want to see what's happening right here. You're here in the crowd, you're walking along, and Jesus is like, Peter and John, here's what I want you to do. They're like, hey, where, where do you want us to do this? Pause and all eyes over to who? Judas hey, what? Yeah, where? You see what he wants to know? He wants to know where so that he can tell the chief priests and have Jesus arrested. That's his goal. He's already plotted. He's arranged this. He's set it up. He just needs intel. Where's it going to go down? So watch how this unfolds. This is what I call pre-arranged counterintelligence. It's genius by Jesus. He knows exactly what Judas has done and is planning to do. And so he says, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That's really amazing right there in itself. Okay, Follow him into the house that he enters until the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? This is amazing. He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. So think about this. Peter and John, they go into the city, probably through the Golden Gate, right? They go in. There is people, there, there's people running all over the place, right? They're preparing for Passover. 
and they're supposed to look for a guy carrying a jar of water? How many guys are carrying the jar of purification water for the ceremony that they're preparing for in their own homes? Well, it turns out that in this day, it was actually somewhat rare to see a man carrying a jar of water. Typically, apparently, they carried the skins, and the women would carry the jars. I didn't know that. So they go in, and sure enough, just as had been appointed, either in the sovereign plan of God and and the Spirit of God gave the window of of events that would be, or Jesus had prearranged these things to be in place. Either way is spectacular. Here's the man with the jar of water. They follow him to the house. There it is. Judas knows nothing. He doesn't know where they're going to be. He can't tell. He can't give it away. So the work of Peter and John, just so we know and can appreciate what they are asked to do, this is a significant amount of work. They have to then go from that house and purchase the spotless lamb. They have to make a purchase, and that lamb has to be inspected. It has to be without blemish. So it would qualify for the Passover sacrifice. Then they would have to take, and in one of the three great movements of sacrifices in the temple, they would get in line and then sacrifice that lamb in the temple uh, with the priest. The, the, the priest would be lined up with silver bowls and the, the lambs would be held out. And I'm sorry, kids, this is a little intense, but they would hold the lamb and they would cut the throat of the lamb and the blood would gush into the bowl of the innocent lamb. The spotless lamb would bleed out into the bowl and the priest would take that bowl and then take some of the blood and pour it into the basin of the altar in the temple. They would carry that lamb then on their shoulders back to the house. Now, just so we're clear, we're talking a very bloody scene. If you're like me, bloody scenes are not good. Like, I get really weak in the knees. I would be a mess if I lived during this time. I'd I'd be like crawling through Jerusalem so I wouldn't pass out. There is blood running everywhere at Passover. They would have come back covered in the blood of this lamb, and then they would begin to prepare it. They had to present, uh, deliver the lamb, present the skin to the owner of the home, the master of the house, and, and basically confirm it is a lamb without blemish. This lamb qualifies. He would confirm, and then they would roast the lamb and prepare the side dishes. And all of the, uh, the, the accompanying dishes and all of this was a pointer and a reminder of the hard experience in Egypt, how horrible slavery was, the, the, the dirt and the straw that they would have to churn together to make the mortar mix and the bricks for building Pharaoh's stuff. It was a reminder. Even matzah, it's the bread of suffering, right? That's what it means. And so they would get everything ready and then they would light the candles as the sun would set And they would wait for Jesus and the rest of the disciples to come. At the appointed hour, they would arrive and they were what? Dressed in white. Dressed in white. Prepared to share together in the supper with Jesus. So all of that gives us a a setting. You feel yourself there? Are you in the room? Thursday night, upper room, rich man's house. It's large. It's spread out. There's a low couch here. And then a three, kind of a horseshoe couch setup 
So the, the disciples would, would lay, like apparently they were all right-handed. I would also have problems because I'm left-handed. They would lay with their feet facing out, not like our couches where we put our feet in. They would lay on their left elbow and they would eat with their right hand and be dipping like that. That's how they would, they would have the supper. Now, let's look at the verses of the supper itself. Verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled uh, in the kingdom of God. What a fascinating prophetic utterance that is. I've earnestly desired this Passover. Think of how deeply emotional this moment is. Think of every Passover that Jesus has had in his entire life. Leading up to this night, the night of his betrayal, the night of his arrest, that literally within hours he will be nailed to a cross to fulfill all that is anticipated in the Passover. I think he looks around and he sees the men at the table. And he loves them. Now, to be clear, we're going to see next week, these guys begin arguing about who's the greatest. Oh! It's a good thing Jesus was without sin because he had every reason to really yell at them in the middle of this meal. Instead, he gets up and he serves them. He wraps a towel around his waist like a servant. He washes their feet. We'll look at that next week. It's a deeply emotional moment And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Wow. This is the first cup of Passover. There are four cups that are passed. Uh, Each one has a significant meaning. The first cup is the cup of blessing, as it were, or a sanctification, that which sets them apart. And so he takes it, and different than normal, he takes a cup, and he says, I want you now to divide it among yourselves. And so this is not COVID-approved, right? This is a common cup, and he, he begins, and then he passes it, probably to his right, and they go around. Now, remember this, you have John on Jesus' right, and who's on his left? Most likely Judas is on his left, right next to him. Peter is in the servant seat at the other side of the table. The cup passes all the way around the table. And one of the things we see from this is even when we gather at the Lord's table, we gather around one table. We share one bread. We have one cup. We have one Savior. Jesus is the common in our common union. When we say communion, that's what we mean. We have a common union, and that's Christ. That is Christ. So he, he passes the one cup all the way around for all of them. It starts with him. That's significant for us to see. Anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb, these are two statements that he makes back to back. They're eschatological, in times statements, and I believe what he's saying is the next time we're going to be sitting together like this, in this special meal is going to be in the millennium. Let me show you from the book of Revelation 19, 
verses 6 through 9. It was granted to her, the church, that's us, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We're going to be dressed in white. And that's the righteous deeds. It stands for the righteous deeds of the saints. We will be without sin by God's grace. Thank you. Someday, Lord, no more sin. All of his doing. And the angel said, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the marriage supper when we will be seated at the table of our King, of our Savior. And He will share in leading us through a great feast and supper. And it says even that He will dress Himself like a servant and serve us at this future event. What a glorious day it will be. Jesus has that in mind right here on that Thursday night. This marks the final Passover. This is the end. Think of how massive a transition this is. We're talking about the end of all the ceremonial law. We're going to be studying Leviticus here in the fall. And all of the law, all of the stuff that he has instituted through the Mosaic Covenant, all of that is concluded in this moment. No more sacrifices are needed. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. He is about to do his work. All of what Passover has meant has led up to this very point. This is the climax, and it finishes. Now, the moral law, that remains in place because God doesn't change. He is who he is, and so we still have the moral law, but the ceremonial law, all of the restrictions that you read in the Old Testament, all of these things that you're supposed to do or not do, that all concludes in this moment. It's a fascinating thing to see him turn. We see this in this verse right here. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, now this is a parting from Passover. This is the Lord's Supper. He's instituting something totally new now. All the disciples would have been like, wait, what? This isn't what we do. Jesus is like, this is what we do now, beginning today. He said, as he held out the bread, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All of a sudden, the change here is drastic. It's huge. Before, the unleavened bread referred to the affliction and the challenge of living under Egyptian slavery and, and just the gruesome experience that that was. Now, Jesus changes it. And he said, when you see that unleavened bread, I want you to remember me. And I want you to picture this. This is my body. It's given for you. It's given for you. And he broke it, right? He broke it and handed it to them. He distributed it, he distributed it out. Now, when we say he broke it, his body was not broken. In fact, not a bone of his body was broken, and that was the fulfillment of prophecy. Just like not a bone of uh, the uh, lamb was allowed to be broken during its cooking and preparation. It would disqualify the lamb. So the bread was without leaven, which stood for sin, unleavened bread. The body was, was complete and there and given in remembrance of him. Jesus said in John 
chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, go to Exodus, and where are we with this? Anyone? Manna. Okay? The manna. The, the stuff that shows up on the ground, and they're like, what is it? I don't know. Well, let's just call it, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? It's the white stuff. Let's eat it. And they survived on this manna. Jesus said, that was me. That's like, that, that's a pointer to me. That's what I am here for you. You have to eat me, as it were. If anyone eats of this bread, this, this being me, Jesus, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my body, my flesh. It goes completely hand in hand with what he's been teaching. Hmm. It refers to substitutionary atonement. This is a back, uh, foundational, backbone doc, uh, 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 doctrine of our faith. If you don't have this, you don't have a gospel refers to the work of Jesus to be given up in our place. He is our substitute. Just like every year when the lamb was sacrificed, that lamb died. And every Jew knew what that meant. When that blood poured into that bowl, the Jews understood that should be my blood. That's what I deserve because of my sin. That should be me instead of that lamb. The problem is, is that's a lamb. That lamb can't save anybody. It was only the blood of the lamb that God said would cover sin, but it was repeated over and over and over. Jesus comes and says, remember John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. His once for all sacrifice is sufficient to save to the ends of the earth. It's amazing to think that God would design his plan of salvation such that people who deserve to die a death for their sins under his righteous wrath could be forgiven through the death of another. That's substitutionary atonement. That's what it means. That's why the cross is our only hope. The cross of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection mean everything. If anybody pulls any of those out, there's no gospel left. There is no hope. Isaiah 53 anticipates this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed here on the cross. And you ask, by who? By the Father. It says it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Why? Because in doing so, He was showing love and grace and forgiveness, atoning for us. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. I like how John MacArthur said it. He said, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life. So that he could treat you as if you had lived his. Isn't that amazing? That's the great exchange. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's a glorious plan, and it has accomplished salvation. 
Jesus is aware of this. This is the night where this, this crescendo of redemption comes into view. This is my body, which is given for you. Now, just have to stop here. Um, the Catholics have emphasized the is in an incorrect way. This is my body does not mean it is literally my flesh. Jesus is sitting at the table holding bread, not a chunk of his arm. Okay, uh, just to be clear, transubstantiation is not that Jesus in communion literally is present and his body is being consumed. Actually, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, other places, said, I am the door. Right? He's not an actual door. He's saying, this represents me. When you see the bread, I want you to remember me. It's a symbol. It's not the actual body. The, the Lutherans came along years later to try to straighten out the Catholics, and they said, well, it's consubstantiation. They, they said it, it's his spiritual presence, which I don't really know exactly what that means, but I don't think that's the case either. God is certainly blessing in a special way through the, the, the work of gathering at his table and partaking in the Lord's Supper. But his presence is remembered in, uh, in all things, not just uh, spiritually present in, in the taking of communion. It's a symbol, a pointer. This is my body given for you. So it's important to remember this. Some I know here have some Catholic background, and it's important to kind of keep that clear. When we're taking communion, it's just bread, friends. It's just bread. And, and, and it's just grape juice here, right? These are symbols, pointers, and they're sacred symbols. They mean so much to us. They're not to be treated lightly or just um, to be handled with, with, uh, with no regard, Do this in remembrance of me. I love that our Savior has loved us with the grace of tangible and ongoing reminders. The first Sunday of every month we gather at this table. We gather together and we, we, we do so because Jesus is our common union. And we gather at that table to engage our senses in the reminder of the gospel. It is a, a visible word, but it's also a, a, a word that we can taste. It's an ordinance of the church. If, if there is a group of people who meet regularly and they sing and they sit and they stand and they preach, but they do not do the Lord's Supper, they are not a church. This is a command. Do this in remembrance of me. And so what a joy it is. What a grace of God it is to gather. It's one of the hardest experiences of COVID for me was trying to do this online. It just absolutely annoyed me. How can you do that online? We're all over the place. No, we should be here together, one body in Christ, sharing. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, uh, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So now Jesus takes the cup, and note this, it says, after they had eaten, which means we're, we're dealing here now with the third cup of the meal. This is the cup of redemption. After the meal has concluded, 
Jesus takes the cup and he says these words, and these words are absolutely loaded with meaning. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As they had the wine, he holds this cup out. The cup of redemption. This is one that the the Jews would have uh, anticipated uh, the, the redemption of God in all of his glorious work. Jesus now says, this cup is about me. This cup is about what I do, what I'm going to do. You're going to understand this more. And it's the new covenant. The new covenant. The cup that is poured out. Think, in just a few hours, Jesus will be praying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's the same cup. It's the cup of His wrath, the Father's wrath that is going to be poured out on the Son. It is what accomplishes redemption. The blood of Christ must flow. Brings about the new covenant. Now, for those who are like, new covenant, you lost me. Let me go to Jeremiah 31 and and show you what it is. Behold, the prophet writes, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, he says, by the way, that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Like an unfaithful wife, Israel has been. They have broken the covenant that they made. All that you have commanded, we will obey, we will do. They said over and over. And did they? No. They didn't make it another couple days before they grumbled against the Lord. All that you have spoken, we will do. Have we? Lest we point the finger and say those crazy Israelites... We have all broken the law, the Mosaic law. We are lawbreakers. We are guilty. We are rebels at heart. We have completely asked the blood to be upon our head. But there's good news. There's good news. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I won't just bring it to them on tablets of stone and say, do it. Now, it's going to be different. The new covenant is, I'm going to put it in you. I will write it on their hearts. You know what this is? This is a heart transplant. This is God literally, sovereignly, supernaturally taking the heart of rebels and replacing it with soft hearts, inclined to obey, hearts filled with faith, loyal Seeking, longing for God. I will be their God. They shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. How can a righteous and holy God do that? The only way that's possible is through the death of a substitute. And Jesus says, it's my blood. That's it. My blood is going to secure the new covenant for you. It's coming. Get ready. And so it reminds us that there is no redemption without wrath. Without wrath. Now, the wrath of God has fallen on hard times in our days, friends. There are not enough pulpits preaching about the wrath of God. 
about how it's rightly deserved by all of us, the rebels, the sinners. If you don't understand the significance of wrath, you will never understand how glorious the cross is. And so we must see Jesus in this moment with increasingly the weight of our sin, actual sins committed by actual people like you and me, on Jesus as He goes, and we'll study next week, as He goes into the garden to pray. Wrath and redemption, friends. They go hand in hand. Now, before we conclude here, I want to carry these last couple verses because they remind us about Judas and what's happening here in in this dinner. Verse 21 through 23, But behold, the hand of him, Jesus says, who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it, would be, it could be who was going to do this? Who of us would betray Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. How is that even possible? Which shows you how amazing Judas is as a poser. He's like the chief of posers. He's got them all fooled, but one. And Jesus says, his hand is on the table. It's right next to him. We learn in the Gospel of John that Jesus dips bread and hands it over and says, the one whom I give this is the one who will betray me. And and Judas took the bread and then departed into the night. Hmm. Don't miss this. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. See that. It's what it is. I am doing the work I've been assigned. By whom? By the Father. He has determined this would be the way it is. Even so, in that betrayal, this is part of the fulfillment of that. It goes all the way back to Ahithophel in David and the betrayal that David experienced, which was a prophetic pointer to the son of David who would be betrayed by a close friend. And then Jesus pronounces a woe on Judas. And I think this is as much a loving grace as anything. It's like a final warning to him. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So what we see here in this, friends, is how divine sovereignty and human responsibility come together. In our minds, we try to conceive of how this is possible. We don't think it's possible. We think, well, God is either sovereign and he does all things as he has planned and determined, or we are free and responsible and we make choices and when we, we are responsible for the choices that we make. And, and somehow we think that in the Bible these two things are at odds. They are not. They are completely coming together over and over throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. The word I use is concurrence. It's as if two streams that seem separate flow together inseparably. You can't identify which molecules of water uh, are separated. They just, they run together. And our minds struggle to conceive of how this can be. Well, how is it that Judas is pronounced upon a woe if in his betrayal he is doing as it has been determined by the Father? And the answer is, I don't know, but it is 
Because Jesus just said it. Even more so. You have to understand that the cross of Jesus Christ was planned. It was ordained before the foundation of the world. The, the, the cross of Jesus Christ did not just happen. It was brought to pass by the hand of God. He did that. Let me show you. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, and for our benefit, just add Judas in there, right? All of these details, all of this plan, they were all gathered together to do whatever, as they're praying and talking to the Father, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Whew. They're not just saying here that it was just the plan. They're saying as well, it was the hand of God. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. All of these things were brought about. How was he crushed? He was crushed on a Roman cross by crucifixion, by men who would give account for their actions, guilty, condemned. And even in the midst of this, Jesus prays and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, divine sovereignty, yes, that's a biblical category. We have to have it in view. Human responsibility, absolutely, we are responsible for the choices we make, and we will answer. We will give an account. These are not at odds, friends. If we doubt that, then we call into question the very cross that we trust for our very salvation. It is the plan. It's always been the plan, and it's glorious. So, Jesus, or Judas runs off into the night. This would be a bad night for Judas. He runs off. He tells them, I know where they're going. They're going to the garden to pray. This is where you can find him. I got the intel that I needed. And he betrays Jesus. And they say, well, how are we going to do it? Well, with a kiss. The one I kiss is the one. It finishes with his suicide. He hangs himself. He completely goes crazy throws 30 pieces of silver back. What have I done? Runs off and hangs himself. Not repentant in the slightest. It is a sad, sad thing. Judas will not be in heaven, friends. His betrayal was cold and it revealed that his heart was dead. Now, our response when we think about these things, what a mixture of truth coming together in this special, special night that Jesus shared with his disciples. As you think about Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, there is only one response that you can have. Amazing love, how can it be, that you, Jesus, my God, would die for me. That you would, the one without sin, take the cross that I deserve I'm the sinner, not you. But out of love, you took my place. You died my death. You paid the price in your blood on the post so that the Father would pass over me, would forgive me, that I could be forgiven. You were buried. You were raised. You are glorious. You're king. Friends,
This is the reality of the Lord's table. This is every time we gather and celebrate together. We gather as one body because we have a common Savior. And we gather together. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, as Jesus himself commanded us, we proclaim. That's what we're doing. We're proclaiming his death until he comes. Until he comes. And he's coming again because he has said, we're going to have a feast. We're going to have a feast. It's my prayer that all of us will be there. If you're here today and Jesus is not your hope alone in this life and the next, then I would call you with all of these gospel realities, bend your knee to him. Turn from your sins. Trust his finished work to atone for, pay for the penalty for all of your sins, and you will be forgiven. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will show you how to live, give you a new heart, inclined to walk in His way. That's what God does. Let's pray. Father, we glorify You for the spectacular wisdom of Your purposed plan of old. We thank You that this has been plan A from the beginning. We thank You that You're never surprised or shocked or scrambling to figure out what to do. Lord, we thank You for each one here who has seen their Savior as He is there on the cross paying for their actual sins. We pray, Lord, that You would stir in us a deep love and appreciation for Jesus who was willing to die the death that we deserve, to take in full and drink the cup of wrath from You that we deserve. We thank You for that. We thank You that we can be forgiven by His blood. Father, thank You for sending, for giving Your Son in this way. We honor You and glorify You. Lord, I pray if there be any here who have not embraced the King in this way, that, that, that have not bent their knee and, and repented of their sins and trusted Jesus as Lord, Lord, work right now, even in their hearts, do as Jeremiah spoke. Accomplish a sovereign gift of salvation. Turn them to Jesus. Even now we pray. Soften their heart. Melt the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Cause them to walk in your way, we pray. Delight them in your son Jesus. Oh Lord, we thank you for the, the gift of forgiveness in life. And we honor you and glorify you in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good singing, church. Before you go, I want you to know about the final cup of Passover. I believe that Jesus didn't drink it that night. It's referred to as the Hallel cup, the cup of praise. I think he's waiting to drink it until we are all together for the great marriage supper of the Lamb in which we will sing his praise forever and ever and ever. So, until that day, Good Shepherd Community Church, may you go boldly, delighting in your King, shining His light into a dark world that desperately needs hope and salvation. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.